You know, we are going to spend our year, or at least the first part of our year, thinking about biblical priorities for young families. And time management, not in the sense of, uh, of just being meticulous in our schedule, but how the Lord would call us to spend the time that we have. And, uh, you know, this is a, every stage of life is one in which we are constantly having to evaluate what are the things we should give ourselves to? What are the priority focuses of our time? And, and certainly when you go from being single to being married, that's a, a significant change in your life that requires a reorientation to say, okay, I used to have all this time that I kind of do whatever I wanted. Now there's somebody else. <laughs> who cares about how I spend my time. And, and there's certain things that scripture calls me to that I, I did not do before. And then when you have kids, it's, it's another element in that. Just when you maybe get comfortable, kind of figured out life, it's like, oh, now there's a new element. And then as those kids grow, you face new pressures and new challenges that are all screaming for our time and attention. You know, whether that is a, a young mom who now has young children who don't participate in your schedule in the way that you want them to. And you think you know what you're going to get done today, but they're not all up for it. And there's other things that are pulling you from that. Or, or as your kids grow and there's opportunities abounding for sports and other hobbies and extracurricular activities and things, and increasingly demanding on your family's schedule, how do we handle those kinds of things? And, you know, many in our world are very meticulous about their schedule. And there's, there's lots of best-selling books on how to manage your life and manage your time and, and increase your productivity. And yet many of those are, are kind of like a, a, a crew of sailors, you know, maybe the Olympic guys on the boat where they're all paddling together. Everything in their life is striving towards a particular goal. And yet the reality is that they're going the wrong direction. <laughs> and so they're meticulous in their energy and efforts to get somewhere. But at the end of the day, they're going the wrong direction. I saw a worst play of the NFL that was a guy named Jim Marshall, I believe it was. He was, uh, I think, played for the Minnesota Vikings. And back in the 1960s, he, he picked up a fumble. I think Jeff was at the game. And uh, he, um, he remembers that. He... Uh, uh, he picked up a fumble and he ran for all he was worth into the end zone only to discover that he had just uh, given the other team a safety instead of a touchdown. You know, all of his efforts and yet he realized it was all for naught. It was the, the wrong direction. And so while we want to get to considering details of our life and day, I want us to start thinking about the big picture direction of our life. You know, if we get that wrong, if we are not moving in the right direction, it doesn't matter how meticulous and detailed we are in what we use our time for, we will have missed the boat. And so tonight I want you to think with me about the direction of your life, about where you're heading, about what you would say are the primary purposes that you are striving for. You know, most of us would think of, of things like we want to be a good parent or we want to be faithful in our job or a, a good husband. And all of those are roles that we play, but that's not the chief direction that we're going. Now, there's a number of places in the Bible we could go to unpack God's purpose for our life. Why did God made you? What does he desire from you chiefly? 
You know, we could look at, at when God created Adam and what his instructions were for mankind. And uh, we could look at, at Jesus always doing the will of, of the Father, what defined his life. We could look at, at Paul, who summarized his life, to live is Christ. Or, or you think of maybe the catechism, what's the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And all of those are, are ways that we could package what God has called us to. I, I want us to look at the commands that God has given us, and particularly Christ's summary of those in Matthew 22. If you turn with me to Matthew 22 in your Bible briefly tonight as we introduce our series this evening. In, in Matthew 22, verse 34, Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders, and he has already engaged in a number of questions with them. He knows that their intent, as it says in verse 15, is that they might trap him. They're not there to learn. They're there to try to ensnare him. And one of the questions that they come to him with in verse 34, it says, a Pharisee heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. And he said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What, what is it that is the most important command that God has given us that should define how we live? What's the great commandment? And he said to him, answering his question, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus says you can boil down what God wants from you and expects from you to these two ideas. Everything else hangs on those. Love the Lord your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and the second, love your neighbor as yourself. When you think of what your purpose, the direction of your life is, and when I think of that for me, we ought to come back to, we are about loving God, which is connected to to glorifying him, to living for him and enjoying him. And we should come back to, we are here to, to love others, to love our neighbor. Tonight, I want us to think about loving God, and next time we'll consider loving others. If you look at this verse, he says, you shall love the Lord your God. Implied in this is who God is, and this is, is a phrase from the Old Testament that we see in, in many places. It's, it's the Lord, it's Yahweh, the one true God, and he is the Lord your God, the God whom you have a relationship with. If you do, it's through his son, Jesus Christ. And he said, you shall love him with all you are, all your heart, your emotions, all your soul, your will and your desire, all your mind, your your intellect and your thoughts. If I was to summarize that idea, he's not so much saying you have separate components of you, but he's saying all of you, your entire life and being is to be consumed with and totally devoted to God in every respect. Your entire life and being consumed with and totally devoted to God in every respect. Whether you are a parent or not, 
whether you are uh, working a particular job or a different job, whether you live in this neighborhood or that, this state or that, your life is to be consumed with and devoted to him. Why is that? Why should we love him? I mean, certainly the scripture gives us a, a number of reasons, and we don't have time to unpack them all, but I think we can summarize it in, in two ways. We are called to love God because of who he is. He, he says, you shall love the Lord, your God. You shall love the Lord. You shall love the one true God who has revealed himself in scripture because of who he is. He is God. He is the creator of all things is a key part of that idea of Yahweh. I am who I am. I'm the eternal one. And and because of his character, I I love Psalm 27, four, it says one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Is that how you think about God? I I long to behold the beauty of the Lord. You know, that, that may be how you thought of your spouse or think of your spouse, particularly maybe when you were, you know, you were dating and just longed to get a glimpse of them. And that like made your day when you saw them. You know, this is not in, a, uh, in any sense of a, a sexual beholding of him, but it's, it's that he is precious to me. He is a delight to me because of who he is. He's beautiful. John Piper puts it this way. He says, love him with all that you are for all that he is. Be- because of who God is, we are to love him with all that we are. We are to be wholly devoted to him, but it's also because of what he has done for us. It's not simply who he is, but he says he is the Lord, your God. For Israel, that context was typically, he's the God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt, like at the beginning of the 10 commandments, which, which hang on these two ideas of loving God and loving people. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He says, I am your God because I chose you and I drew you to myself. And now I am not just the God, I am your God. God set his love on us. First John four nineteen. he loves us. We love because he first loved us. He, he sought us out and he gave himself for us to, to forgive us. I, I love Luke 7, 36 to 50. It, if you want to turn over there briefly, it's, it's when Jesus was at a Pharisee's house And he was reclining and dining there. And it describes the scene that there was a woman in the city, verse 37, who was a sinner, an immoral woman. And when she had learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his hair with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing him with perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. 
And Jesus answered and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave. So which of them will love him more? One owed 500, the other 50. One more than a, a year's wages for a day laborer. One uh, a month and a half. Both significant amounts, but one an incredibly uh, much more significant. And he says... Who would love him more? And Simon said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Simon probably recognized where this was going. So he's, he's thinking, eh, I don't know that I really want to say this. And he said, you have judged correctly. And turning towards the woman, he said, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, Jesus' point with Simon was not to justify Simon in his own mind to say, yeah, you didn't really need a lot of forgiveness. His, his point was the demonstration that you have been forgiven much is that you love much. The, the reality that she understood her sin and understood the magnitude of what Christ was doing in, in coming to forgive her drove her to love him much. She understood the need that she had. And, and so the emphasis is not whether or not we've been forgiven and how much, it's, it's, it's how much we understand what God has done for us. You know, when you think of your life and what you love and what you treasure and what you are devoted to, is it chiefly to God, the true God who is beautiful in his character, and the God who is your God, who loved you, and because of that, made provision for forgiveness for you. You know, Jesus in this verse says, if you have, uh, uh, essentially is, is saying, if you have been forgiven much, the result will be that you love much. And so characteristic for a believer who understands their sin is to love the Lord their God. Now, does that mean that we do that perfectly? No, this standard that God gives us, this command drives us back to the gospel because we're reminded we don't even do, we, we can't even do that well. We love so many other things. We're devoted to so many other things besides him. And yet he is merciful to us and it should drive us to love him. Well, what's it look like for us to love God? Again, we'll talk more about some specific roles and applications of what it looks like to love God in different components of our life. But big picture, what's it look like to love him? You know, when we consider what the scriptures say, there's a number of principles that I think are, are clear and key for us. The first is that we delight in and enjoy him. You know, you, you guys know this from a human perspective. How do, you, how do you know that you love your spouse? Well, a, a significant part of that is you delight in them and enjoy them, not simply in an emotional way, but being committed to them and having a desire to know them. John Piper again says, we prefer above all else to know him and see him and be with him and be like him. 
Listen to these Psalms. Psalm 43, 4 says, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Psalm 8410, a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. It's a genuine desire. It says, I, I, I delight in knowing you and I enjoy your presence and, and, and find my, my chief fulfillment in knowing you. That's why the, the catechism, what is the chief end of man? What were you made for? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to be with him, finding your satisfaction in him. This is more than an external show, isn't it? This is not just, well, I, I go to church because I'm supposed to. No, this is I, I delight in him and I do external things, but they flow from a heart that loves him genuinely. So much so that our love for anything else pales in comparison. As Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or mother or wife or children, he cannot be my disciple. Does that mean you're supposed to legitimately hate those people? No. It means comparatively, your love and devotion to Christ is, is so much greater than those that it makes it comparatively look almost like you would even hate them. Do delight in and enjoy him, cultivating that heart because of who he is and what he's done. Do you, secondly, obey him? So many times in the Old Testament, it uses a phrase for those who love him and keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 7, 9 is one example. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah 1, 5, again, to those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel 9, 4, for those who love him and keep his commandments. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will do what? Give you one guess. You'll keep my commandments. John 14, 21, he has my commandments and keeps them, is the one who loves me. Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Second John 6, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. You love God? You dev- you're devoted to him in, a, in entirety of all of your life. The result is you are eager to obey him. Not in the begrudging way that we see too often in our own hearts or, or like in our kids. You, you see that, those of you that have kids old enough, uh, when you command them to do something, you can tell when their heart's not in it, right? I mean, you can look and see that they're like, fine, I'll do it because you're bigger than me or because I don't want whatever the consequence is. I'm not happy about it, but I am doing it. That's, that's not obedience from love. That's obedience from, from fear or from some other self-motivation. 1 John 5, 3 says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. 
That's, that's loving God. When we see what he tells us to do and our immediate reaction is not, ah, oh, man, why do I have to do that? But our immediate reaction or the reaction we cultivate is I love him. He, he, he has my best interest at heart. I trust him. I delight in him. I see him as beautiful. And so the commandments that he gives me that flow out of his character, I am eager to embrace. This was the perfect picture of Jesus. John 14, 31, Jesus said, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I write lots of emotional songs and sing them in front of people. Is that what he says? No, he doesn't say that. He says, so that the world will know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. You know where he was going? (laughs) He was on his way to the cross. And he said, the demonstration that I love God, the way everybody knows I love God, is that I do what he has commanded me to do. Now, was there a delight in God in Jesus' heart? You bet there was. Was there a a desire to know him and be with him? You bet there was. But it was also a clear commitment to do what he said. Philippians 2.8 describes that obedience. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if you love God, if I love God, we will be eager to do what he says. Again, are we going to do that perfectly? No. (laughs) But is our heart attitude going to be one of what God says I want to do? It will be. And if we don't keep his commandments as a as a pattern, it means we don't love him and, and most likely means that we don't know him. First John 2, 4, and 5 says, The one who says, I have come to know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been perfected. We're going to keep his commandments. And part of the reason we're going to keep his commandments is because of a a third reality if we love God, which is a desire to pursue likeness to him. A desire to pursue likeness to him. Again, if you think of your kids, you know, nothing gives a dad more joy than when a child is imitating him. You know, when when you do something, well, when it's a good thing. Um, (laughs) You know, not always, uh, but when, you know, when they see dad uh, out mowing the grass and so they come get a little something and start pushing it behind you or whatever it is, you know, that gives you great joy to see they, they want to be like me. They want to reflect me. And so it is with God. We glorify him by modeling likeness to him for others to see. And it displays our love. You know, it's, it's related to that idea of keeping his commandments. You know, again, we think sometimes that those commandments are just kind of arbitrary things that God's told us to do, uh, but they're not. They flow from his character. And so what God has commanded us to do that we will do because we love him are the means by which God increasingly conforms us to his image and his character. And if we love him, we're going to be eager for that, eager to see uh, our, our own lives reflect more of what he is like. We will pursue likeness 
to him, as we obey him, as we get to know him more, when we are drawn to spend time in his word so that we get to know him and know what he calls us to, that flows out of a desire to, to imitate him, to live in the way that he has called us to, to reflect that. A fourth reality, if we love him, we will be eager to proclaim him to others. We will be eager to proclaim him. You know, again, you, you know this from just personal life experience. What are the kinds of things that we tend to talk about when we don't have to talk about something else? You know, there's times at work when you have to talk about things that, that are going on at work. There's times uh, as a family when you have to talk about logistical details of life and things. There's times with your kids when you have to talk about particular things. But when we don't have to talk about something, what is it that comes out of our mouth? Well, it's the things that we are thinking about. It's the things that we are passionate about. It's the things that we are, are, um, are most focused on and thinking of. We talk about the things or people that we think about and the things that we love. And so it is with the things of God. And in the Psalms, again, there's, there's many examples where the psalmist expresses how easy it is for him to talk about God to others and to talk to God about him. Places like Psalm 34, uh, where the psalmist says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Again, is that the psalmist just saying, well, that's what God tells me to do, so I guess I'll praise him continually. No, it's, it's a psalmist saying, this is what I, what I love. I love God. I'm devoted to him. I am passionate about him and, and knowing him, and so it flows out of me that I will bless him. Psalm 35, 28, my tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. Again, that's talking about God, but it's talking about God to who? <laughs> To him, it's worshiping him. It's declaring his praises to him because we delight in him and we love him. But we will also talk about him with others. We will tell others of his glory. Psalm 96.3, tell of his glory among the nations. Psalm 108.3, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. And we see this in in regards to our children as well, we're, we're to declare the praises of the Lord to the next generation. Not in a forced way, like, oh, we have to do this. Like, we got to teach you to, to, to add because it's just something you have to do. Uh, but it's, no, this is our delight. And so we want to pass that along to you. And you think of maybe the, uh, the favorite hobby that you have. What's something that you love and delight in and enjoy doing? For, for me, you know, I've, I've enjoyed a number of sports. I, I played basketball some growing up. I play in the men's basketball league uh, with, uh, with some other guys, and uh, we have a good time trying to play basketball. My kids have seen that. They've seen me talk about basketball and play it, so most of my kids enjoy basketball because I have talked to them about that and modeled uh, a joy in that. Such will be the case with, with the Lord. If we love him and are passionate about him, we will proclaim him to the Lord and to others. You know, if, if we don't do that, what does that reveal? Well, it, it reveals that he's not really on our minds and on our hearts, that he's not what we are devoted to. And we have to cultivate that by spending time with him 
by learning of him, by meditating on the truth of who he is, loving him in that way. And then lastly, if we love him, we will live for him and for his glory. 2 Corinthians 5 says, the love of Christ controls us or compels us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. He's speaking here most likely of Christ's love for us, which motivates then our reciprocal love for him. And and it says that the, the sacrifice that he has made on our behalf drives us to sacrifice our lives to live on his behalf, to, to love for his sake, to live for his sake and for his glory, that he's the one who gets the attention. You know, it's very easy to do acts on the outside that appear to demonstrate a love for or an interest in God, but in fact are motivated by a love of self. You know, some of the priorities and things that we will talk about that should characterize our life, we can do them, but we can do them for the wrong reasons. It's kind of like my dog. We have a dog named Agent 99. Uh, We got her after a VBS that was a spy academy, and uh, all of our girls have A names, so we needed an A name, and Agent it is. And uh, if you spend time at my house, you might think at first that my dog, Agent, loves me. Because when I get home, she comes running from wherever she is. And she is at the, the, the little storm door staring out, and she's wagging her tail. And, and when I walk in, she's jumping up at me. And, and if I go sit on the couch, she will jump up next to me, and she will be right with me. And you might think, man, that dog loves you. But I know the truth. <laughs> I know that that dog loves herself, <laughs> And so she likes to be with me when I'm doing what she wants. So if I'm sitting on the couch, she will come and nuzzle up under my hand and she will bounce a little bit to get my hand moving and hope that the momentum will continue and I will rub her. And if I stop, she'll nuzzle back under there again and eventually she will give up and run off and find somebody else. So she acts like she loves me and maybe there's a little bit of affection in there, but it's chiefly that she wants what I can do for her. She, she wants what I give her, food, tummy rubs, all of those things that she desires, Yes, a lot of people are that way with God and his son. At, at a quick glance, it may look as though they love him. They go to the church, read their Bible, make an effort to obey. But at the end, it's motivated by what they get out of it or by what they think he will do for him, them. And that was true of a lot of those who were interested in Jesus. If we had time, we'd look at John 2 and the multitudes who were enthralled with Jesus and who watched him in, uh, and, and who were uh, eager, it says, to, uh, uh, to even uh, to, to be with him and to, to follow him. But in the end, the result was they denied him because he stopped giving them what they wanted. Those early crowds saw him do things like turn water into wine. And they thought, this is a good guy to have around. We love him. We want to be with him. But really, they just loved what he gave them. And so 
the, the test of our love and our obedience is not do we sometimes do things that God says we should do. The test is what do we do when God says to do something that we don't want to do? You know how I know my dog doesn't really love me? Because when she's running around in the front yard and I say come, she sometimes doesn't, often. You know, when she's doing whatever she wants, she is much more hesitant to come and be with me. When our desires don't line up with God's, a heart of love says, God's win, God wins. And I, I'm gonna submit myself with joy to him. But when we love ourselves, occasionally our lives and our desires will line up with his and we can convince ourselves that we're okay. But truly loving him means we live not for ourselves, not for our desires, but ultimately for his Guys, if we get that right, if we love the Lord and are devoted to him, there will be things we get wrong about the details of our day and that we need to grow in and things that we want to continue to work hard in, but we will be on the right direction. We'll be rowing towards the end of the race. But if we get that wrong, we can go through all kinds of motions and we can try to, to do certain tasks and certain priorities, but we will find that we have been running the wrong direction because we missed the overall purpose and direction of our life. So this next couple of weeks, wherever you, uh, whatever role you find yourself in, whatever tasks are before you that day, seek to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. Not because you can merit his favor by doing that, but because of who he is and what he's done, that he deserves that. Cultivate that love. Spend time with him. Spend time in his word getting to know him. Spend time thinking about him, talking to him about him, and, and letting that flow over into the other aspects of life. And look forward to getting back together in a couple weeks and thinking about what it means to love others as we love Ourself. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the fact that you have loved us and you have revealed yourself to us. And, and Lord, in our sin, we have run from that and we have spurned you. And yet, for those of us that are in Christ, you have changed our hearts and drawn us to yourself and, and given us new hearts that do delight in you and that are eager to see you honored. And, and yet, Lord, we, we all get distracted and we get devoted to other things, to ourselves, to other pursuits. And I pray that you would help us to reset our hearts and minds on you, that we would genuinely delight in you and delight in knowing you and that we would be eager to obey you, not just when what you say lines up with what we think makes sense, but particularly when it doesn't. And, and Lord, help us to, to be passionate about telling others about you and praising you and, and to live not for ourselves, but for you who died on our behalf. Lord, spur us on to that end. Use the relationships that we build in this group to drive us to see you more clearly and to reflect that commitment in our lives in an increasingly consistent way. Lord, we thank you for this time. We look forward to our time together in a couple of weeks and uh, just ask that you would use us in the coming days. In Christ's name. Amen.